Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. And let me welcome to the show for the first time, Chief Medical Officer, the first black woman, I think, to be in that position and Deputy Commissioner for Health, uh, Commissioner for Center for um, Health Equity and Community Wellness at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Let me welcome Dr. Michelle Morse. Thank you for having me, Karen. It's great to be with you on Wellness Wednesday. Yes, good to see you. Um, before we get into your background and everything, where are we with COVID? Because I'm so confused by everything. And now there's, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida wants to hem up Pfizer and Moderna over the MNRA, uh, the vaccine, even though that technology is also now dealing with cancer patients and helping in that. What we're I'm vaccinated. Somebody was like, so what do you, what do you, what, are you, are you going to apologize? And I'm like, no, um, I got vaccinated. I'm happy. And I'm still wearing a mask and I don't want to be around people. And F that COVID still here. Where are we? Thank you. You are not the only person who's confused. So let me start by saying that. And thank you for sharing your experience and that you're vaccinated because the more that we can say that openly, um, and the more people who are comfortable talking about the fact that they're vaccinated, that they feel protected, that it's safe, um, the better off we are. So where are we with COVID is a very good question. I would tell you um, that we are still battling COVID very, very actively here in New York City and across the whole entire world, unfortunately. The Northern Hemisphere is in the wintertime right now, and the wintertime is always a terrible time for respiratory viruses. COVID is one of them. Flu or influenza is another. RSV is another. So we've got lots of different respiratory viruses circulating right now because it's cold outside and everybody wants to be indoors. And that means that, you know, viruses are passing from people to people way more um, than in other times of the year. So this is also a time when you have to be particularly careful, especially if you have elders um, or other folks who have, you know, health vulnerabilities, um, because it's a very easy time to pass those viruses amongst people in a household or even, you know, at work, um, on the subway, wherever you might be. And so we are still actively battling COVID. In fact, our COVID cases in New York City are kind of slowly climbing up, unfortunately. Um, and we are also seeing a huge increase in flu in New York City and many places around the country. Um, so not only get your COVID bivalent booster vaccine, but also get your flu shot because okay. these things protect you from getting hospitalized, from suffering worse, um, outcomes and they are incredibly safe and incredibly protective. And this is probably the most important time um, this year for you to go ahead and get those vaccines. All right. So Dr. Michelle Morris, how do we know that, you know, what you're saying is true? So uh, I'll be fully uh, transparent. Christy Purnell, I had to talk with her about a thousand times before I actually got, cause I was like, I'll just keep my immune system. She was like, no, nah. she was in the Moderna trials and I've had her on many times. I've had many docs since Cindy Duke. So I'm like, all right, I could just not be around people. She was like, you don't understand. You know, this is about like not dying, not being hospitalized. And I ain't got time to be sick. So I was like, all right, I went and got it. Now this bivalent, I'm like, at what point, like booster, 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 booster. I've never had a flu shot, never had the flu. Make this make sense to me that I have to keep getting boosted every year now when I've never done this for the flu because I know how to navigate the flu. How is the flu different from this COVID demon? 
It's a very good question. And I love Dr. Purnell. I follow her on Twitter. She's incredible. So that's so good to hear that you're already getting great advice and, and your viewers, excuse me, listeners are getting great advice as well. Um, and you're right. It, it's, not, uh, it's not exactly straightforward, but here's what happens with viruses. They change, they evolve, right? As soon as our immune system uh, figures out how to block them, they, they change. They're kind of this, you know, very uh, flexible and very adaptive um, uh, thing that, that gets out there. And that's why they, they have survived in this world for millions and millions of years and, and certainly impacted us humans for a very, very long time, unfortunately. So the COVID virus keeps evolving. It keeps, we keep chasing it and trying to protect ourselves from it. And it keeps running away. Um, and it's been very effective in changing over the past almost three years of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the bivalent booster specifically for COVID now really addresses the variants, um, which are the kind of evolved, one evolved example of COVID um, that are circulating the most right now across the world. And so if you can get a, a shot that's even more um, specific to this newest you know, evolved version of the virus, it is worth it. I'm telling you, it is a thousand percent worth it. It's worth it for everyone. In fact, it just uh, was authorized for young folks and babies, which is great, but it is particularly important. And I'm, I'm going to say this as many times as you'll let me, Karen. It is particularly important for people 65 and older. Everyone should get it. I got my bivalent booster just a couple months ago, but especially folks who are 65 and older and folks who have, you know, other health issues, you're more vulnerable. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, in New York City is that it's our folks who are over 65 who are getting hospitalized the most with COVID mm -hmm. and having the worst outcomes, unfortunately. So when we look at those numbers, we say, man, we really got to reach our 65 plus folks and make sure they get out there and get that bivalent booster. And flu actually does the same thing, believe it or not. Flu evolves, morphs, mutates, um, just like COVID does. But you may have, Karen, you may have had flu and not realized it. That's no, totally I've never had the flu. I know why. <laughs> okay. I'm not. Well, so I'm I mean, not going to convince you on that one. No, That's okay. Well, That's I right. mean, so I was pre-COVID. Before COVID, I was already COVID ready. Uh, and everyone could tell you, you know, I got so many calls during COVID like, girl, you knew something. I was like, yeah, y'all nasty. Don't wash your hands. I'd have been in the bathroom way too many times with people that just go in and walk out. And I'm like, uh, so then I started. All right. Now I got to get a paper towel to open the bathroom. Door. Like it's it's turn, like I'm like the monk. I'm a little OCD, <laughs> a lot of OCD. So it started years ago watching people be nasty. And I'm like, OK. Uh, you know, I'm like, I'm not following down. So we would spray down the studio, wipe down the chairs, the seat, every the armrest, the mic. You know, we had a whole ritual and then pandemic happened. And I was like, are we ready for this? Haven't had anything, never had the flu. Cause you know, there's, you wash your hands and you, you know, people, st if, it's, if you cough around me, my st students, if you're in my class and you like, cough, I'm like out get out don't come to class sick you will not get washing and disinfecting that is that is playing. great practice those are great practices i hope that everyone keeps doing it because everyone did a lot more people started doing it in covid and i hope i hope it sticks and i hope the mask wearing sticks as well i have to tell you karen it is very very protective to be wearing a mask, a high-grade mask, a surgical mask, a KN95 on the subway when you're out in public. 
it is great practice. And what's the downside, right? I mean, yeah, it's a little inconvenient. But wear those masks. Wear those masks. They're so protective for flu, RSV, and COVID. So it's not just for COVID. It really helps you with lots of viruses. I the allergy season was really good too. I mean, people and I just like this piece of cloth became a damn political football. I don't even understand it. Just wear it. Damn. And a fashion statement for some people, which is, you know. Yes. You can make it fun. You can make it fun yes. too. Dr. Morse is here. She is the chief medical officer and deputy commissioner for Center uh, for Health Equity and Community Wellness at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. To be the first in, you know, I'm tired of the first, but, you know, this is good. It's good for you to be in this position. What does it mean for you? Where, where are you from? Where are your people's from? How did you go to medical school? What does this mean to be the first in this position? Thank you for that, Karen. Thank you. It is such an honor. I can't tell you how much of an honor it is, right? This is the first time the New York City Health Department's had a chief medical officer. And for me to serve in that role, especially as a Black woman, um, I can't tell you how much it means. And it's, it has not been easy. Let's say that. Um, this has been a very, very um, hectic and um, challenging time in public health. Uh, but I was so honored to be chosen for this role and to get to serve in it, um, especially because I'm from Philly and, you know, the New York Philly dynamic is what it is, right? But I'm from Philly, was born and raised in Philly. I grew up in West Philly specifically, actually went to Philly public schools my whole life. My mom is a Philly public school teacher. So shout out to all the public school teachers who are listening right now. Um, and I'm proud to be a product of 12, you know, K to 12 in Philly public schools. So you went um, to Abbott Elementary? My... You went to Abbott? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I love it. It's funny. That's my mom's favorite show. She's like, that is exactly how the Philly um, Department of Education was. She, she absolutely loves that show. So how did yeah. you come out of that? challenging education system to become a doctor? I have to give my mom all the credit. I, I, I maybe get a tiny bit of it, but um, for those of you who have public school teachers as moms or dads, woo, there is um, no way you're not going to be successful. My mom was very serious about supporting us. And more than anything, I'm so thankful for my mom because she taught me to learn and to be curious. And she taught me to have a thirst for learning. And that to me is probably the most important thing that that anyone could have given me in addition to just believing in me no matter what. So, um, so that's a big part of it. My mom raised me and my sister as a single mom um, on a, a public school teacher salary. Um, and she made it work for us. I mean, every summer was a Black history lesson, right? We, um, when we could, you know, went on road trips to, you know, like to, to understand the history of enslavement in this country. Um, we were always in museums. We were always in the library. Um, and more than anything, she exposed us to so many different kinds of things. So for me, I kind of, I got really into the math, science, nerdy kind of stuff, honestly, in middle school and in high school. But I also had a Black woman um, pediatrician. Um, Dr. Pamela Huffman, if I don't know if, if she, she might be listening, who knows? She was incredible. She's, um, you know, to have a black woman pediatrician as a kid, to know that that is a possibility. Um, and then myself to, to start to get to shadow doctors and learn about the work and see how you get to take the math and science into changing the lives of human beings and accompanying them in the hardest, you know, often the hardest parts of their life. 
um, you know, so much of it is a kind of a public service role um, that you play as a, as a physician. Um, and so, yeah, my mom, my mom gets all the credit. My mom, my grandma, all, all the ancestors before them. Um, but that, that really was a huge part of my upbringing was that, you know, again, learning to um, appreciate knowledge and loving learning. So that doesn't tell us why you landed on medicine. True. Why do you want to become a doctor and an internist at that? True, true. Well, I'll tell you, a big part of it was, was when I was in college, um, the AIDS movement was happening. And that was a time I was in college from 99 to 2003. It was a very, very difficult time um, because HIV AIDS was the pandemic of that era people were dying in the most horrible, inequitable ways. And, you know, I grew up with, you know, a lot of knowledge and learning um, about not just Black folks in the U.S., but Black folks around the world and the continent. And to see what happened with HIV AIDS, just because of colonialism and greed and white supremacy and racism, the way that we saw Black people... Pause there, because, you know, even, you know, Dr. Michelle Morris is here, you know, you, you... We think of AIDS, I remember it, you know, first it was uh, like a Haitian disease, right? I remember that, right? It was something. And so then it was like all Haitians got excoriated around the globe, especially here in America, United States. The four H's, yeah. Right. And Mm -hmm. then then it was a gay disease. So then it was like, oh, well, they deserve it. God has given them, you know, then it was that, right? And Mm -hmm. then we started, there's like Rock Hudson, wait a minute. Hold up, mm-hmm. you know, so then right. Elizabeth Taylor's like, right. I'm, you know, Shirley, Ralph started right. getting involved in activism and you look at like, but these are people. So we, we were okay as long mm-hmm. as it was Haitian, as long as it mm-hmm. was, as it was gay people, you know, gay others. men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not just others, but like people that mm-hmm. were already devalued. Mm-hmm. We were okay yeah. with people dying. And that to me is the fundamental problem that we still have today. Right. As long yes. as. It's people that we don't want here anyway. Right. right. We're okay. Let them get, that's what they get. Like there's no humanity in this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's what I was seeing and I was horrified and I got wrapped up in the student movement for HIV AIDS treatment and access and equity and centering the humanity of people who got HIV or AIDS. And really that was my first realization that the like love and passion I had for history and social justice could actually be something I could do as a doctor as well. And I could bring in that equity and, you know, history and activism and social justice into the work um, of being a doctor and serving the people. And HIV, the HIV AIDS movement, the student movement in particular was really where I learned that. And so I started to see that in college. And then I kind of, I was already leaning towards medical school. I, I actually, um, I majored in French in college, believe it or not, because I thought, oh, I would be, I want to be a doctor in West Africa. And I was really, really interested in French, um, the history of um, French, um, you know, culture and the decolonial movements in Francophone West Africa. So, um, and then my first year of medical school, I really got wrapped up into the HIV AIDS student movement. And I even got to live in Botswana in sub-Saharan Africa for a year as a medical student. And then there was no turning back because living there for a year the life expectancy in Botswana in one of the regions of the country at that time was 36 years. This was in 2006. 
And I started to understand, oh, well, I saw young folks dying in West Philly from poverty and guns and drugs. You know, my dad actually happens to be a funeral home director. And, and then I made the connection between seeing young folks dying in Botswana because of poverty and because of racism and because of colonialism. But then the unique part of that experience in particular in Botswana in 2006 was Botswana was the first country on the continent of Africa to start a free national HIV AIDS treatment program. And they were launching it in 2006 when I was there as a student and that changed the game because not only did I see young people dying, but then I saw people coming to life with Mm -hmm. HIV treatment. And to see that that wasn't the result of white people, that was Botswana, black people in Botswana organizing themselves, making sure that the resources of their country were being used to serve their people. And now, you know, the life expectancy in Botswana is in the sixties, right? This country has transformed and to see a part of that, I came back to the US completely radicalized and ready to, to, to dive into health justice and global health equity in a whole new kind of way. So activism was a part of it for me. Dr. Michelle Morse is here, NYC Health CMO. She's the uh, chief medical officer, New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. So what disturbs you most? I mean, we went, we're still in COVID, like the pandemic to me is still here. So, um, and how we treated people during that, I think was horrific. But now in terms of that, I feel like there's also this, you know, tale of two cities in terms of healthcare. Uh, People aren't believed when they say they have pain because of institutional racism. You don't have enough doctors now. There's doctor fatigue. We're just talking about that. And people are leaving the healthcare um, industry. Black people are already prone to go get some herbs and stuff and go watch a Dr. Sabi video. We ain't really trying to go to the doctor too much. So what's been the biggest challenge uh, for us? And we need to be healthy because we got work to do. And then there's stress, epigenetics and all of that, right? Right. What's That's what's right. the biggest challenge confronting us right now, Dr. Morris? Well, uh, there are so many and everything you said resonates and you're absolutely right. It, it is a profoundly challenging time to push forward for health equity and health of people of color in particular who have been forgotten and marginalized and mistreated. And so I think you're right. That is a massive challenge for us right now. Um, but I would say one of the one of the things that really I think is important to also describe and talk about is that there are solutions. There are solutions to this. So number one, yes, every study you look at shows that people of color are treated differently in health and healthcare settings. And that is a major problem. So anytime a person of color or really anyone tells me, I don't trust doctors because I had this bad experience, I get that, right? I get that. And at the same time, the system that we created is made by human beings. That means it can be changed. And in Mm -hmm. fact, it must be changed. And there are lots of examples actually of work that's happening across the country and across the world that shows that we can change those systems and we can do better for people of color and we can get better outcomes and we can actually achieve equity. If you look at wealthy countries in the in, across the world, actually, the U.S. is doing the worst in terms of health for white people and people of color compared to other wealthy countries. And so, you know, these systems of racism in our history of white supremacy is hurting everybody, including white people. It's just hurting black people more. Well, now, the one you know, of the biggest... White oh, people sorry, gonna, no, I'm just going to say they uh, and people, uh, particularly in these uh, rural southern areas, rather vote 
their perceived mm. uh, power in their race over their teeth and their health. Mm. Like they, mm. they, they don't even make the connection. Like they, they hate Obamacare, but love the affordable care act. You know, that's how inane this is right now. And I don't see an end to it. So uh, the the question, and I want definitely want you to finish what you were going to say, how do we take care of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like the system mm-hmm. can't be mm-hmm. trusted. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, the, uh, a colleague of mine, Jonathan Metzl, wrote a whole book about what you're describing called Dying of Whiteness. And it is, uh, unfortunately, white supremacy is destructive, right? Um, that is the form of internalized racism that white people have and hold. And um, it is quite hard to change, but that's their work, right? To your point, Karen, our work is how do we build, you know, how do we repair how do we um, trust each other in the black community specifically and other communities of color, the indigenous communities across this um, world are doing that work as well. So I think building and repairing our relationships with each other is huge. That's particularly um, important, I think, in the African diaspora, where, you know, even me growing up in Philly, right? Sometimes I remember, you know, black friends saying, oh, you know, Africans this or Africans that, right? And then some of my friends who are um, first generation African here in the US, oh, oh, you know, American black people or this or black or, or that, right? That division is white supremacy, right? And we have to talk about that. We have to have that conversation. We have to find a way to build with each other. And honestly, like living for me, living in Botswana as a black American woman, I lived in Haiti for several years as well. Those were the experiences that helped me to understand how to build those bridges, repair some of that history, repair some of the relationships, and remind ourselves of what's possible together. Look at Haiti, right? You know, all we hear about Haiti in the news right now is is the political nightmare, unfortunately, that's playing out. But let's not forget what 1804 meant to the world. Now, I'm not Haitian, but that is one of the most inspiring parts of history in this world, right? The first ever independent black republic, that's possible, right? Like the the fact that that's possible is huge. So looking to those examples and sharing those examples across the African diaspora and doing the work of rebuilding and repairing is so critical. And we have to talk about reparations. I've, I've been a part of two research studies on reparations. One of them showed that if reparations had been paid to Black American descendants of enslaved people prior to COVID, COVID transmission would have been reduced by 30 to 68%. And then the other how, study- Wait, how, what's yeah. the connection there? How, how would that- Great have... question. It's wait. because wealth is protective. Wealth is protective. And so if reparations have been paid to Black people who are disproportionately and unfairly poor and impoverished, then Black people would have had the resources to not live in substandard housing, unfortunately, or crowded housing, or would have not necessarily been in some of the low-paid, unfairly low-paid frontline jobs, or, you know, even had the resources really just to buy masks and hand sanitizer. Mm. Um, So those are the kinds of things that wealth allows for. It protects your health. And so Black people, um, I'll just give you one last statistic, Black people in Boston, on average, have a wealth of $8, and that is assets minus debt. White people, $247,000. That 
is inequity. That's the legacy of racism. And then we often scratch our heads when we look at the outcomes and life expectancy for Black people and we don't understand it, but wealth is protective. So those are just some of the examples of the kinds of repair that need to happen. Living in Haiti, living in Botswana, you know, we have a movement even among the um, reparations crowd that I feel is very divisive. Yes, reparations are owed to descendants of Africans here. But you can fight for that and not denigrate Africans there or Africans Absolutely. everywhere. We Two things can Absolutely. happen at the same time. Yes. Solidarity. You know, this foundational, yes, okay. All right, yes. Well, they need to get their reparations from Spain. Yes, okay. But Malcolm X went to the UN and if we come together, then we can go to the UN against Spain, France, Portugal, Great Britain, together, America, United States of America, together. We can roll together. Let's go, you know, as opposed to this thing that we're doing now, which is counterproductive, divide and conquer. Sun Tzu told us what, how that ends. Let's stop mm-hmm. doing that. And let's mm-hmm. all, you know, it's okay. It's okay. This check ain't even cut and we fighting. Like, it's weird to me common cause, common cause. And I couldn't agree more. It is about solidarity, right? I'll fight just as hard for Haiti to get the $21 billion that France owes it as I will for Black folks here in this country, as I will for Congolese, you know, refugees, as I will for Black people in South Africa. So absolutely, if we don't have this analysis that allows us to see how our struggles are shared and deeply interconnected, then you're absolutely right. We will not be successful. I couldn't agree more. I'm all about solidarity. I'm all about solidarity. Yes, we get there together. We're one. Dr. Michelle Morris, going to medical school, I was just talking with um, a young lady who's finishing up and had to go to the Caribbean to go to medical school because she couldn't get in here. Um, There was a period of time when they were like, yes, Negroes, come to medical school. And then the doors seemed to shut down. I think you got in that period when it was like, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's not as easy today to go to medical school for black people. What, how do we overcome that? I mean, my Harry, yes, thank you. Thank you, Morehouse. Thank you, um, excuse me, um, Howard, that these medical schools produce more black doctors than any place outside of Cuba. But we need to do better. Duke, all of them need to, you know, Columbia, Harvard, whatever, you know, like all of the schools should have you know, uh, at least 12, 13% of the population in medical school is black, black. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could absolutely agree. And it is a total injustice that that has not already been been achieved. Frankly, there was a, a study that the American Association of Medical Colleges did, and they showed that I, I want to say it was 2016 or so, that there were less black men in medical school in 2016 than there were in like the 1990s, like that the trajectory is terrible unfortunately. And in fact, so many people are incarcerated, Black people are incarcerated, right? It's kind of like, how, how, how are people not putting the pieces together? But there's profound racism in the selection process for going to medical school. Profound, profound. And the thing, one of the many things that leads to those inequities in who gets in is these test scores, relying on test scores that actually are ultimately not a predictor of how good of a doctor you're going to be, of how smart you are. These are often used as tools to exclude Black people or make Black people or other people of color or, you know, women 
think that they're not worthy or not smart enough. And that's not the case. And that's not the case. So we need massive reform. And I, I don't know when it's going to happen, Karen, but, you know, it's it feels like George Floyd's murder and the inequities in 2020 and COVID in particular are already in the rearview mirror for a oh, lot of white wow. people. Yes, and it's really unfortunate, right? They're, they they want to go back to the normal when the yeah. normal is white supremacy. Yes, and we're not, and it's not supremacy. It's nationalism. It's terrorism. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. fragility. It's n- yes. n- nothing supreme about um, a notion that you're better than somebody because you don't have melanin. That's silly. Mm. Uh, mm. But, you know, we're going to continue this conversation and encourage our folk to go wherever they need to go to come serve us. And I'm grateful to have this introduction to you. Will you come back? Thank you, Karen. Oh, my God, it would be an honor. Absolutely. I can tell we have a lot more to talk about. Yes, we, we, we only did. got to the tip of the iceberg. We did. We did. We're going to bring you back, Dr. Michelle Morris. You can follow her at NYC Health. Uh, actually, I think you you are under your own name, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I don't need to give out that one. Um, I do have a CMO Twitter handle, yeah. and then I do have Michelle Morris as well. Yeah, that's right. right. Michelle Morris. Uh, actually, yep, you do. I see it, but I follow. Uh, let me follow this one, too, because I'm following Michelle Morris. Uh, two L's y'all. Thank you. Thank you for coming through. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. Thank you for your show and for wellness Wednesdays and for supporting the health of people of color. I appreciate it. That's my privilege actually. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 PM East on Sirius XM urban view channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.